Isaiah 35, there's a prophecy from Isaiah, and it's, um, it's really a, a profound prophecy. And what's really uh, intriguing to me is that there are so many Messianic prophecies, more than 300 of them, that land on Jesus of Nazareth. And these were foretold by people from different, uh, you know, different parts of, of a nation and, and people just from different times and different places. Yet, all of this lands directly upon Jesus of Nazareth. It's very, very intriguing. And so, here's a prophecy that is going to be fulfilled, but as it's being fulfilled... There's, it's, it's very interesting who's there and how it's happening and what's happening. And I find that in this story, we find our story. And if you've ever felt stuck at any point of your life, then this will minister to you. This will encourage you. And for those who need a little challenge, it will also challenge you. And so my wife and I know what it's like to feel stuck. Many times ministry is a baptism of disappointment. Um, uh, we, we had trouble having children. My wife and I, she, she lost two children. One when I came back from Africa and another time we were on an international trip and uh, it was the day before her birthday. She miscarried a second time and we had to get up in the morning and tell everyone God is good and God is faithful. And um, I'm going to share something with you and I, and I don't want you to feel as if I'm being confrontational, but I want to share something and I, and I want you to hear it correctly because I want to challenge something that is said that I used to say and it's most of the time said with good intentions, but it's a little bit off and I find that if we understand this, it'll bring some peace to our life. Have you ever heard someone say, God is in control? Right? So I've said it, so I'm not pointing at you, okay? But this is the thing. If God is in control, he's doing a really bad job. The place is really messed up. But if God is in charge, everyone will have to give an account to him, which means he's totally just and completely good. So what happens is there's places and times and spaces where Satan is ruling and he's, his kingdom is there and he has a, a position of dominance in that geographical location or in that place. What I love about the Gospels, as we see Jesus, we see Jesus kind of move in and displace the enemy and bring the rule of God. So now, on earth as it is in heaven, which means there's some places on earth that it's not like it is in heaven. Which means we find our calling, and in that calling, we're called to bring Jesus to people and people to Jesus. So what I'm not saying is, I, I'm saying that God is totally sovereign. He's completely in charge. He's completely unstoppable. He can do whatever he wants. And people say, oh, God is a gentleman. Well, when was the last time you asked to be spit out of a whale into a village? <laughs> so I'm not saying that he's not sovereign. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, omniscient. He's all of that. But one of the most fascinating things about God's power is often we express our power in what we can do. Many times God expresses his love and his power in what he chooses not to do. And in that, he's given us an option. He's given us the right to choose. Why? Because he's loving and because he's good. 
So you're going to see a situation where Jesus is preaching and teaching and there's someone who is living under the power of the enemy and Jesus frees him. Now, if God were in control of every single little thing, that guy wouldn't be in, under the influence of the enemy. But God, he shows us, Jesus shows us that God is totally in charge and he's totally good. Now, why do I say this? I say this because sometimes things happen in our life that we cannot understand and we don't, we don't understand it. And in, in certain seasons of our life, we don't need understanding, we need faith. And faith will bring us into a place of understanding. When my wife and I lost two children, we go, we are not going to put God on trial because he's good and he didn't do this. And Jesus did tell me about an enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We have a real enemy unless Jesus is wasting his breath, which I don't think he is. And in our, our, um, our Christianity, sometimes we, we say things that... They don't really make sense, but we're trying to give someone some comfort or some encouragement. But sometimes the best thing we can do is be a shoulder to lean on. And an ear to listen. And so I just know that I've said things with good intentions and I've been wrong. And I think that sometimes with good intentions it does damage. And I think that sometimes just being quiet and being there and being a listening ear is actually the most powerful thing that we could actually be. To me, one of the most amazing things about Jesus is this, that no matter what I've done, no matter what time it is, He's always available. It's so interesting because it's like the higher you climb on some ladder of corporate success or ministry success, whatever that even looks like, it's almost like the more isolated you become and the farther you become from the people that you're supposed to be loving. With Jesus, it's the absolute opposite. He has all authority, all power. The only stipulation is he can't lie because it's not in him because lies usually come from fear or irresponsibility. So he's the truth, so he cannot lie, which means he can be trusted. So he has all of this power, all of this love, and he is always available. Which is the direct opposite of as soon as you become successful, you become completely, totally and unavailable. Interesting how Jesus kind of redefines what success really is. So Isaiah 35, I shared that, I hope that didn't push you too hard, but I, I want you to think sometimes, because sometimes we say things that they're sincere, but they're like not quite there, and sometimes they're not that helpful. And so there's, there's another thing too that it's really important that like, think of this, Jesus is always available. I know I said that a minute ago, but I'm saying it again. You know why I'm saying it again? Because it's really profound. His phone is never busy. No matter what I've done, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to us, we can always come to him. That, that to me is powerful. And so Jesus said about the enemy, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And sometimes we have this idea like, well, the devil needs, he needs an open door. Right? We say that. I've said it too. I'm, I'm going to just nail myself to the walls. The devil needs an open door. Well, Okay, fine, but when was the last time a thief asked your permission to steal? Amen. I'm just saying. He's a very, very crafty fellow, and he does not need your permission to lie to you or steal from you. But anyway, Isaiah 35, this is a prophecy, and you're going to see who it's about in just a few minutes. 
Strengthen, this is verse 3, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong and do not fear. So, in the midst of fear, in the midst of feeling weak, God says, be strong and do not fear. When God commands you to do something, He's actually empowering you to be able to do it. So what was once impossible is now possible because His words are seasoned with grace and grace empowers me to do with Him what I could never do without Him. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Like that word, vengeance. Watch how He describes vengeance. With recompense of God, He will come and save you. Then, vengeance, then, that ties this together. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. What kind of vengeance is this? Vengeance upon your enemy. Not the vengeance with tanks and guns, which I'm not a pacifist, I'm just saying, this is not that type of vengeance. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. So this vengeance is to a free people who have been afflicted by the enemy. Watch. This is the type of vengeance that Jesus came to take. Mark 2. We're going to see this fulfilled, but I want you to notice who's there. And I'm going to give you a picture, a vivid picture of who's there and what that would look like. All right? And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together, and there was no longer room to receive them, not even near to the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. When they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power or authority, exousia, on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, go to your house immediately. He took up his bed and went out in the presence of them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So Jesus is in Capernaum. Capernaum is a fish village. That is where he chose to operate his ministry from. Whatever happened in Capernaum didn't stay in Capernaum because it was a little small port. It was like a fishing village. And what Jesus said and did in Capernaum went other places. It would be like choosing to base your ministry headquarters now near an airport. He is in a strategic location. And so what he does and says in Capernaum doesn't stay there. So in a sense, he positioned himself to go viral, so to speak. 
And so now he's in a house, and because he's powerful, he's popular. Because when because people can come to him as they are, that's the good news, but the good news gets better. They don't have to stay that way. So there's something radically different about this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, who was born of a virgin, who did not choose to operate his ministry out of his home city. That's another lesson. But anyway, so now he's, he's preaching the word. The word there is the word logos, which means he is really expounding upon who he is. He's revealing who he is by what he's saying. Now, who he is is about to be revealed by what he is about to do. And he's going to explain it. And there are specific people in this place. And it's important that they're there. It's very profound who's sitting there and why. Now, the scribes are sitting in a little dirt mud house. The scribes were very decorated. They dressed differently. They looked differently. They were really, really radically out of place. Okay, so let me give you how out of place. It would be like a Roman Catholic priest with his whole garb on sitting in a strip club. That's how out of place. I'm, I'm just, I know this is very graphic, but it's, it would be like him saying, I'm here to enjoy the beauty of creation. You go, what is this guy, crazy? Well, you, you understand what I'm saying. These guys, they stick out like a sore thumb. Imagine you go onto a construction site and there's a guy working in a three-piece suit and he's nailing nails. And you're going, is this guy out to lunch? Like, what's up with this guy? You know, is he, is he okay? So these guys are radically out of place. And what's interesting about religious people is religious people don't look to see and they don't listen to hear. They listen to find fault. So they can never really receive what it is that's actually being offered. And so Jesus is there teaching and these people break in and they disrupt the meeting. So faith, real faith sometimes is a little disruptive to what's happening to the little controlled environment of Jesus sitting in a house and teaching. And so what happens is they rip a hole in the roof and they lower this paralytic man down. Jesus sees their faith and then responds to him. In that we find our calling because our job is to bring people to Jesus and Jesus to people. Are you guys with me? And so now what's happening is, this is a, there's a disruption, but Jesus goes with it. He's flowing with it. He's moving with it. He sees, whoa, there's something here. There's faith here. How did he see their faith? Through their action. What we really believe, we behave. In other words, my actions really show you what I really believe. And actually, unfortunately, my language, actually, my pastor David Greco says this, your language locates you. People say, oh, I really didn't mean that. No, the problem is, actually, you really did mean that. That's the real issue. (laughs) Unfortunately, I did mean that because I said it. And so out of the abundance of what's there, whether it's bitter or sweet, the mouth speaks, right? And so they press in, they lower him down, Jesus responds, but Jesus calls him a profound name. He says, son, son. Well, Jesus doesn't have a baby mother, and Jesus isn't married. And Jesus is calling a grown man who's a cripple 
son, technon, which is like little boy, to a grown man. Well, there's a prophecy in Isaiah that Jesus would be the everlasting father. So now Jesus is being a father to a man who was rejected by his father. In the Jewish culture, if someone was sick, they believed it was either their sin or the sins of the family, specifically the father or the mother. So they would cast the person who's sick out. Even lepers. Lepers would have to say, unclean, unclean, and they were not allowed to come within a certain distance of people. So now this man had been, re he's rejected by his family. The people who carried him to the meeting are not even called his friends. It just says four men carried him. He's rejected in the family unit. Religiously speaking, he's rejected. Economically speaking, he's broke. Socially, he's isolated. He's completely rejected, forgotten, forsaken. And somehow, four people decide, because of what they believe about Jesus, that if we bring him to Jesus, he'll never be the same. That was what they believed. Jesus saw their faith and responded to him. Sometimes, we need to believe for someone else. Yeah. Yeah, many times. Sometimes you need to believe for someone who you don't consider a friend and is not part of your family. But God is looking to make them part of his family and he'll use your faith to do it. And so what happens here is Jesus calls him son or boy. Your sins are forgiven. But what's, what's interesting is the guy is not confessing his sin. What does Jesus show us? Don't wait till people are sorry to forgive them. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That doesn't mean we don't need to confess. It just means we don't need to wait till someone else confesses to forgive them. It's healthy to confess your sin. That's how you clear your conscience. It's important. It's an important part of life. It's an important part of faith. It's also an important part of community. The Bible says confess your faults one to another. That's not sin. You confess your sin to God, your faults to people, because that's what creates community. That's what creates trust. Let's say I have a meeting with Ryan and I show up late. I didn't sin against God. God is not angry with me. But you know what? I gave my word to Ryan, so I should say, Ryan, I am sorry for being late. Please forgive me. Now I'm confessing my fault. Now I'm taking the, the elephant out of the room. I'm owning it so that we can continue to be friends. So I'm saying I'm sorry I didn't value your time like I should. I tried to do too much before I left. Forgive me. And through that honesty and transparency now we can rebuild. Versus me not saying anything and him thinking, well, what's up with this guy? Who does he think he is? Right? So that's the difference between confessing your sin versus confessing your fault. So Jesus is not waiting to this guy said he's sorry to forgive him. Which Jesus is showing us how we should live. He's showing us, what did he say? Whoever sins you forgive, I'll forgive. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we're the Pope and we go around pardoning people. But it does mean if someone sins against me and I forgive them, when they stand before God, he doesn't remember what they did to me. 
When I was a young man, I was really wicked, you know? And I wasn't always Christian. And so when I came to the Lord, I said, listen, you've forgiven me of some things that I did. And I didn't do sin, I did iniquity. Because sin is if someone hits you and you hit them back. Iniquity is if you premeditate to do evil to someone. So I figured, wow, the gospel is really good news. So since I've been forgiven of iniquity, not sin, if I would have died in my sin, my mom's prayers wouldn't have saved me. I would have woke up in hell. And so I said, you know what? I'm just going to forgive people. Like before they say they're sorry, I'm going to live with a hard wire bent toward forgiving people. And even if it's hard, even if it takes me my faith to engage my feelings and say, no, 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 I'm really going to walk this out. This is how I'm going to live because I've been forgiven. So whatever people say or do against me, when they stand before you, don't remember it. The way you forgot about what I did, I'll forget. Cancel the debt. So now Jesus, in front of the scribes, says, your sins are forgiven. And they go, mm, only God can do that. Well, wait a minute. The high priest can do that, and the high priest wasn't God. Now he's touching their system of control and finance. Why? Because they had to sell the sacrifice to make atonement for forgiveness. And Jesus, the great high priest, is the new temple, and he's declaring sins are forgiven. That's why at the fall of Jerusalem, the temple had to be destroyed. The same temple that God said to build, and he gave them the pattern and everything, he himself initiated the destruction of the very thing that he commanded them to build. Through the ripping of the veil of the temple from the top to the bottom. And the temple had to be destroyed because he is the new temple. And he is the perfect sacrifice. And in him, our debts are canceled. The temple also had to be destroyed because guess where the debts of the people were kept? In the temple. So if Jesus is the true Jubilee, all of the debts must be canceled. So Jesus is standing in the house, in this little dirt clay house, and he is acting as if he really is the great high priest of our profession. <laughs> I know, he is. It's almost like he knew the book of Hebrews before it was written. <laughs> and so he forgives this guy. He has a word of knowledge about what they're thinking. He reads their mail exactly. And then with their question, he answers a question. He, he gives them a question and then demonstrates the answer. He says, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or say to rise up and walk? But so that you may know who's the you. The scribes. Why is it important that the scribes were there? Because the scribes were the ones who were given authority by God and responsibility by God to validate the authenticity of a testimony in front of two or three witnesses. So they were the ones responsible. They were the ones who would know Isaiah 35. They were the ones to know that he just made a lame person walk. This is a fulfillment of messianic prophecy. This is Israel's Messiah, which means he's the savior of the whole world. Which means we're in a new season. But they had control. They were in bed with Rome. They didn't like that. Jesus was a threat to every power. 
the power of Rome, the power of the religious structure, any system or structure that oppresses people, Jesus is a radical threat to that power. Why? Because Jesus comes to set people free. So any system or structure that holds people in bondage, Jesus comes to set it free. The great liberator. So this is very interesting. So now they're watching this. But Jesus says he wants them to know. Jesus loved the religious people too. He did. He loved everybody. So then Jesus says to this guy, go back home. Home? To the people who neglected and rejected me? Home? Yeah. Go minister reconciliation to the people who rejected you. Why? Because the testimony of what I did for you has the power to transform how they see God. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. New Jersey translation. The testimony of the Lord has the power to make a fool a wise man. The testimony of the Lord is transformational, not just to who received it, but to those who witnessed it. It says that they all glorified God. They were all amazed. That is often what happened where Jesus went because Jesus' words and Jesus' works often and always left an irrefutable witness that couldn't be argued. I was blind and now I see. This man tells me everything from my past. I was deaf, now I hear. I was sick, 38 years, bent over with a spirit of infirmity. 18 years, excuse me. With a spirit of infirmity. She was sick. When you're sick, all you can see is yourself. All you can see is your condition. She's bent over. All she sees is herself. As soon as Jesus heals her, releases her from a spirit of infirmity, what's the first thing she sees? Him. What does healing do? It changes what you look at, what you focus on. I really believe that God, in this season of time, I really have a strong, deep sense of conviction that the Lord really wants His people healthy. And when I say healthy, I'm not just talking about healthy and wealthy. I'm talking about healthy in your soul. So when, when bad things happen, you respond, not react. So when you walk up against storms, you're not neurotic, but you live different than other people. What did Jesus do? You can only speak to the storm that you can sleep in. You only have authority over what doesn't take your peace. What did Jesus say to the storm? Peace, be still. What he had, he released. You can only give what you have. What is the kingdom of God? Righteousness, peace, and joy. What did he do? He released the kingdom of God onto a situation. Onto circumstances, literally onto nature, showing that he is the creator. And he is fully in charge of the creation. The one thing about Jesus is that 
When Jesus spoke, everything had to respond. Let me jump back up. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now he's being a father to the fatherless. He's being a father to the rejected, to the neglected. And he's illustrating this in front of people. And he's showing them what the kingdom of God is like. Now, maybe this is not you, but I, I myself have felt like the lame guy. Like, I've been in circumstances where I feel powerless, saying, what the heck am I going to do about this? You know, I feel like, eh, like I'm just like there, like stuck. Have you ever felt stuck? Just me? Not you? Oh, okay. Okay. Jesus wants to get you unstuck. I don't know if that's a sense, but it sounded good. Jesus wants to free us to walk with him so that we can tell others what he's done for us because in announcing to others what he's done for us, it implies that he wants to do the same thing for them. Why? Because he's not a respecter of persons, because he's faithful. Because he's the truth, because he can't lie. Which means he can be trusted. Which means we should follow him. Now the scribes just so happen to be totally out of place. But yet, they are right there witnessing what God wanted to do. Jesus often would say, he would heal someone and say, go show yourself to the priest. It was the priest's who would do the cleansing rituals. What is he acting as? The priest. But by him telling them, go show yourself to the priest, what is he saying? He's saying, you've been healed of cancer. Now go to the doctor and get the cancer-free document so you can stick it on your wall and don't you ever forget what I did. And by you announcing what I did, you show them who I am. So these healings were messianic announcements letting the people of Israel know that Jesus is the Messiah, which means he's the Savior of the world. So not only is he healing a man, not only is he restoring a life, not only is he reconciling a family, but he's showing a whole entire power structure who he is by what he does. Jesus said, if you don't believe me for the words I say, believe me for the works that I do. Jesus always gave people a reason to believe. should be true about our life. Whether it's with power, whether it's with character, whether it's integrity, which should be all three. But we should give people a legitimate reason to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and Jesus does what he says he'll do. And in this story we find our calling. These four men with no name Bring a man to Jesus and he's never the same. And I think that we need to live with the conviction that if we bring people to Jesus, they'll never be the same. I I can tell you that Jesus said this, that he who drinks of this water will never thirst again. It doesn't mean you won't be thirsty for more. 
It just means your appetite for other things will go away. And I can tell you, the Lord changed my appetite. The Lord removed my appetite. Every time you pray, lead me not into temptation, what you're actually saying is, do not allow me to desire something that would draw me away inwardly. Which means, do not allow me to desire things that would destroy me. That's what you're praying when you pray the Lord's Prayer. Lead me not into temptation. Let there not be an inward pull towards something that will destroy my life. His sins are forgiven. A family restored. A, a testimony to the religious people. Do you remember when the woman with the issue of blood... Remember that story? Do you know when she pulled on the edge of his garment? Remember that? What does it say? It says in Malachi that the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. Jesus didn't have wings. It's talking about the border of his garment. This is a messianic prophecy. When she pulled on the border of his garment, that prophecy was fulfilled by an unclean woman who had an issue of blood with 12 years. But here's the kicker. Who is standing there watching this happen? Jairus. Jesus is on the way to Jairus' house. Who is Jairus? Ruler of the synagogue. What, is, what does that mean? He's the chief of the lawyers, which means he's the one who puts the final stamp on the authenticity of a testimony. God will faithfully and continually prove himself if we'll come to him with faith. And if we'll come to him even in the midst of our unbelief, Lord, I don't believe, but help me believe. Lord, I'm not fully willing, but make me willing to be made willing. That was the prayer of the great intercessor, Reese Howell. Make me willing to be made willing. Guy prayed for a revival for a long time. God showed up and God told him to leave. <laughs> you know, similar to David. I'll give no sleep, no slumber to my eyelids until I build you a house. God said, don't build me a house. The greatest exploit that David ever did was say no to himself. He had all the money, all the resources, and all the manpower, exactly all the momentum you need to build. And he said no. Because he loved God more than what he could do for God. And God said, okay, I see your heart. So now the money that you made through the plunder that you've taken will actually build the house, but your hands won't do it. But you're investing in the next generation. And since you had war, your son could have peace. And so they were able to build. And so that means that nothing we do for the Lord with a sincere heart is in vain. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Bringing people to the Lord, bringing the Lord to people, that's our calling.